Father, just thank you for the opportunity to come together uh, this morning to worship you, to learn from your word, and do pray as we look into the text here in Luke that um, you would grow our understanding of what Christ suffered, what he went through, and uh, that this would grow our, our knowledge of him, our relationship with him, uh, our desire to live our lives to uh, honor and glorify Christ. And we pray it in his name. Amen. <clears throat> so, this, the temptation that takes place in the wilderness is recorded in three of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, not in John. Uh, we're going to look at the account that's in Luke. <clears throat> so, if you have your Bibles, you can turn to Luke chapter 4, verses 1 through 13, and follow along. I'm going to read through this entire passage. <clears throat> and Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. And he ate nothing during those days, and when they were ended, he was hungry. The devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, command this stone to become bread. And Jesus answered him, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone. And the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time and said to him, to you I will give all this authority and their glory, for it has been delivered to me, and I give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. And Jesus answered him, It is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. <clears throat> and he took him to Jerusalem and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you're the Son of God, throw yourself down from here, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered him, It is said, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. Okay. So uh, last week I mentioned <clears throat> that if we've been a believer for any period of time, uh, read through the Word, a number of times studied the Word, we become accustomed to these stories, we become accustomed to these accounts, um, to the point that we no longer see the wonder, we are no longer impressed by the beauty, the amazing things that are revealed in Scripture, they become commonplace to, it, to us, we become numb to the beauty. Uh, a lot like somebody who grows up in a really uh, beautiful location, someplace like, I don't know, like Hawaii or maybe Yellowstone or the Swiss Alps. After living in a place like that for a while, um, it, it doesn't seem like a big deal anymore. It's just commonplace. It doesn't have an effect on you anymore. No longer overwhelmed or impressed by the beauty that you're surrounded by. <clears throat> and I think we do that with Scripture when we stop thinking about what we're reading, or as I mentioned last week, uh, we, we don't think deeply about what we're reading or studying. I know there's been times when I've been reading through Scripture, and I'll get through several chapters and realize that I don't remember a single thing that I read. It's just a blank. So we need to think deeply uh, as we read and study the Word. Now, another problem <coughs> that... Uh, we have, if we're familiar with a story, a particular story, is 
that the perspective that we are looking at it from uh, may not be entirely accurate. We, uh, we miss the actual purpose of the text because of poor interpretation, bad hermeneutics. Um, and the story of Jesus, Jesus' temptation may be one of those stories. Because a lot of people think that uh, the temptation that takes place in the wilderness was given for the primary purpose of teaching us how to resist temptation. Uh, and that's not what it was given for, okay? Uh, you might even have been, been in a Bible study where that question was asked. What does this teach us about how we should resist temptation? Uh, that's not the point of the passage. Now, there are lessons to be learned in that text about how to resist temptation, but the main purpose of the text is not for us, okay? It's to teach us what Jesus went through. It's very specific to the temptations that he went through, okay? Um, so anyway, that's a mistake that a lot of people make when reading the Gospels. They think that the Gospels uh, are given to teach us something about how we should live our lives when in fact the Gospels, the Gospel record is there primarily to show us, to teach us, to reveal to us Christ so that we can grow in relationship with Him, so that we can deepen our knowledge of Him, become more intimate in our understanding of who He is and what He's done for us. So, rather than consider how Jesus' temptation might have some application to our lives, we're not going to look at that today. We're going to consider what it teaches us about Jesus. So, the first thing that's unique about this story is that Jesus was led into the wilderness for the very specific purpose of confronting temptation. It wasn't something that was happening in the normal course of Jesus's daily life. Okay? Those things certainly happened. Undoubtedly, he was tempted, as we are uh, on a daily basis. But the temptations that he faces in the wilderness were extremely powerful, and they were uh, very much specifically focused on who he was as the Son of God and his mission as the Son of God. <clears throat> Definitely not about us, because let's face it, Satan is never going to tempt you to turn a stone into bread. Satan is never going to offer you all the kingdoms of the world. He's never going to tempt you to go throw yourself off of a pinnacle of the temple in Jerusalem, mainly because the temple's not there anymore, so that wouldn't happen. Um, you might experience you know, certain flavors of those temptations, but nothing like what Christ was tempted with. Um, those temptations that the devil threw at him were very specific to him, okay? <clears throat> so what does Luke's account tell us about Jesus, okay? One of the first things uh, we need to do when we're reading through this text is consider the context, and I know you've heard that many times before. Context is, um, is the most important thing as we study Scripture to understand how um, how it applies to us or doesn't apply to us, okay? So in Luke, immediately after the baptism of Jesus in chapter 3, verses 21 and 22, Luke then records the genealogy of Jesus. And this happens, the genealogy happens immediately before he's led out into the wilderness. 
Um, and that's really different from the way Matthew records the genealogy. Matthew opens the gospel, chapter 1, verse 1, with the genealogy and traces it <clears throat> from Abraham forward. That's not what Luke does. Luke traces the genealogy backwards from Jesus, past Abraham, and all the way to Adam. And he had a specific purpose for doing this. Um, not contradictory to the way Matthew records it, it's just complementary. Okay? So just keep that in mind um, because we'll reference it later on. And a side note here about Luke. <clears throat> uh, on occasion, Luke would accompany the Apostle Paul. Uh, he, he knew him well, we can assume that, and he would have been very familiar with Paul's teaching. So what Luke appears to be doing <clears throat> um, in explaining uh, or giving the, the genealogy the way he does uh, is explaining biographically the importance of Jesus' temptation that is explained doctrinally by Paul. So Paul understands that Adam was created to be a co-regent or a co-ruler under God over creation. He was intended to rule over it, cultivate it, and manage it, take care of it. He was also the representative head of the human race. So when Adam sinned, he dragged the whole human race and all of creation down with him. Sin, disobedience, and the consequences of that sin, a curse and judgment, that's all passed down from Adam. So Jesus then comes, or he's, he's sent as a second Adam or the last Adam. <clears throat> and he does that in order to reverse the curse, to fix what the first Adam messed up. He's going to take the penalty for Adam's sin and for everyone else's sin since Adam that believes in him, <clears throat> and by doing so, he will reverse the effect of that sin on humanity and the rest of creation. And that is explained, Paul explains that in Romans 5, 12 through 21. If you want to turn there, I'm going to read that whole passage as well because it, it makes that connection between Adam and Christ clear. So Romans 5, 12 through 21, <clears throat> um, kind of a long passage, so bear with me. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. And that's referring to Adam. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come, Jesus. But the free gift is not like the trespass, for if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin, Adam, for the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if because of one man's trespass death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation 
for all men. So one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, increased, grace abounded all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. And Paul also explains that further in 1 Corinthians 15, 21 through 28. You want to make note of that. So Luke is showing us the purpose uh, in what Jesus is about to do. He's descended from Adam. He's in Adam's bloodline. He's the second Adam, the last Adam. And he's going to go into battle against sin and the devil. The wilderness now where the temptation is going to take place, it's kind of like a replay of Eden, but it's not in a garden where everything is wonderful, where there's an abundance of food, you have all the necessities of life, everything is in harmony, animals, everybody's living in harmony. The temptation now is going to take place where the effects of sin are all around. There's desolation, destruction, uh, there's a lack of the necessities of life, everything is wild and disordered. And in this temptation in the wilderness, Jesus is going to obey. Um, he's going to obey where Adam disobeyed. Okay, he's going to bring about justification where Adam brought about condemnation. He's going to free the world that has been in bondage to sin since Adam. He's going to heal. He's going to restore. He's going to bring about reconciliation between God and man. Jesus is going to reverse the effects of the curse and bring life, whereas Adam brought death. Where Adam failed, Jesus will succeed. Jesus will bring all this about finally and ultimately with his death on the cross and resurrection. But first, he has to do battle against Satan in the wilderness and succeed where Adam and Eve failed. And this is living that righteousness that is then imputed to us. Jesus is going to restore and return men and women to what they were intended to be, to unbroken fellowship with God, undamaged by sin. He's going to bring about a new creation in which he will be the head, ruling and reigning. So now this is the theology that underlies the temptation. So you can see why we shouldn't view the temptation as uh, primarily as an example for us to follow. It was all about what Jesus was accomplishing or was sent to accomplish. It's not about our sin struggles. And one of the big differences uh, we see uh, between Jesus' temptation and the kind of temptation that we experience is that we're told to flee from sin and temptation. Jesus, on the contrary, moves toward it. He marches, literally marches into battle against sin and the devil. And he's led by the Holy Spirit to do this, led by the Holy Spirit out into the wilderness to confront and defeat Satan, achieving victory where Adam and Eve were defeated. He's born, baptized, and anointed for that purpose. He's going to go to war against the powers of darkness. And then Luke gives us some insight into this 
when he records Jesus' words in chapter 11, later on in chapter 11, verses 21 and 22, Jesus says, when a strong man, fully armed, guards his own palace, his goods are safe. But when one stronger than he attacks him and overcomes him, he takes away his armor in which he trusted and divides his spoil. He's talking about this this battle between him and Satan. So in order for us to be freed from the bondage to sin and the destruction that was brought about by Satan's initial victory over Adam, Jesus has to go to war against the enemy. He has to defeat him. He has to bind him, remove his authority and power over humanity and set the prisoners free. That's what Jesus is accomplishing in the wilderness. And then in the rest of Luke's gospel, having defeated Satan in the temptation in the wilderness, Jesus goes on to proclaim that his kingdom now has come. And he casts out demons. Um, He heals people. He heals those who are blind. He restores sight. He heals the lepers. He raises people from the dead. He restores what has been damaged by Adam's sin, the fall and the curse. Um, And this all begins in the wilderness, okay? Brings life where there was death. And now much of what Jesus accomplished after the wilderness temptation where he is victorious is the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy uh, in regards to the coming Messiah, the Messiah's rule and what the messianic kingdom is going to look like. Uh, Isaiah 35, 4 through 6 is an example of one of those prophecies that says, Say to those who have an anxious heart, be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance, with the recompense of God. He will come and save you. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. For waters break forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. And also Isaiah 61, 1 and 2, the spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn. Those passages speak about what the ultimate messianic kingdom is going to look like, and Jesus' first coming and ministry is giving us a preview of that fully realized kingdom that will take place in the millennial kingdom. But first, uh, Jesus is going to establish a foothold in the kingdom of the God of this world, Satan, what John refers to in 1 John 519, where he says, and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. And this happens in a couple of phases, uh, Jesus establishing this this stronghold or this foothold. Uh, Phase one, Jesus enters um, the world incarnate, becomes a man. Then phase two, uh, he spends 30 years preparing for his public ministry. Phase three, begins his public ministry as Messiah. And the first thing he does after his confirmation um, to that role in baptism, which we talked about last week, is he goes into the wilderness to confront Satan. 
So now the temptations that Satan will throw at Jesus are specifically focused on his humanity rather than his deity. Focuses on his role as the last Adam and the representative of humanity. Focuses on that to rectify the destruction, the bondage that was brought about by the first Adam. And the devil doesn't bother to um, tempt his deity because he knows that, that God cannot be tempted. So he goes after Jesus in his humanity, in his human nature. Tries to destroy Jesus before he's able to accomplish what he was sent to accomplish as a man. Because if Jesus gives in to the temptation in the wilderness, if he sins, then he can't be our substitute. Okay? He won't be able to cover us with his righteousness because he won't be righteous. He won't be able to pay for our sins because he will no longer be the spotless lamb. He will no longer be the sinless savior. So pretty important that he's successful in this, in this wilderness temptation, defeating Satan. And the first temptation that Satan uses in the wilderness is to turn the stone into bread. Luke 4.3, the devil said to him, if you are the son of God, command this stone to become bread. <clears throat> now, that had to have been a, a pretty powerful temptation for Jesus since he'd already been out in the wilderness for 40 days, hadn't eaten anything for 40 days. Now, I, can, I can't even imagine what it would be like to go 40 days without food. I wake up in the morning and I'm hungry. And I think the longest I've ever gone without eating was 10 days when I was in the hospital once for abdominal surgery. But even then, I was getting nutrients intravenously. When I was in the Army, uh, my team went five or six days without food, and um, we were pretty hungry during those times. But, but that's only a fraction of what Jesus experienced, what he went through. Um, just incredible deprivation. He would have literally been starving to death. His body would have been consuming his, his muscle and his flesh, would have been eating itself. And remember, Jesus is here to succeed where Adam failed. <clears throat> but the wilderness is no garden of Eden. There's no food around as there was in the garden. Jesus is totally alone, totally deprived, and he's hungry. So, so why is this temptation such a big deal? And how would it actually be sin? Since all temptation is a temptation to sin. What could be sinful about Jesus making, you know, a little bit of bread out of a stone? He had the ability to do that. Um, in fact, Luke actually records John the Baptist as saying that God is able to make children for Abraham from stones in Luke 3.8. And Luke also records how Jesus turns a little bit of bread into a whole lot of bread in order to feed 5,000 men, probably more like 10 or 15,000 people, including the women and children that were there. So, so what's a big deal about making one stone into just enough bread to feed himself? Why would that be sinful? Well, Satan appeals to him as the son of God. If you're the son of God, Turn the stone into bread and eat. Use your power as God the Son to make a little food for yourself. What could be sinful about that? But the problem is that Jesus is the second Adam. He's the last Adam. He's here to 
succeed where Adam failed. It said that a number of times. Adam and Eve sinned when they were tempted to disobey God and eat, and they did. They ate. Jesus is going to reverse what Adam and Eve did by not disobeying, by not failing to trust God, and that's really the issue. Jesus is going to obey by not giving in to the temptation and not eating. Jesus was here in his incarnation, not considering equality with God a thing to be grasped, therefore not exercising his power and rights as God. He was humbled in the form of a man in order to obey to the point of death, and that's all in Philippians 2, 6 through 8. Mark's already preached through that. So will he follow through on his mission? Will he live and suffer as a humble servant, or will he take advantage of his divine nature to feed his hungry and weakened humanity? Satan puts a focus on Jesus' deity, possibly as a distraction. Jesus was here to live as a man, not exercising his divinity. If he does, he fails, but Jesus doesn't fail. He doesn't forget what he's here to accomplish. He's not distracted from his mission. And how does he respond to Satan? He says, man shall not live by bread alone. Satan focused on his deity. If you're the son of God, Jesus brings the focus back to his humanity. Man shall not live by bread alone. So just kind of to to flesh out what may have been going through Jesus' mind, and some of this is speculation, but... Sinclair Ferguson elaborates on Jesus' response. That's what he says. Jesus is saying, I have not come into this world to exercise my prerogatives. I am here for man, and therefore I must live as a man. Further, my calling is to experience humiliation and weakness and rejection and to live not by the satisfaction of my needs, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. I will obey his word even to the point of death, even if that means death on a cross rather than turn a stone into bread to alleviate my hunger and relieve myself of my suffering servant status. Now, that's a major reversal from the garden. Adam and Eve were tempted to eat and be like God. Remember that? Jesus is tempted to eat as the son of God or die like a man. Adam wanted to be like God. Jesus accepts the suffering and humiliation as a man. Jesus sticks to the mission and succeeds where Adam failed. Okay? But Satan doesn't stop there. Next temptation, uh, next temptation takes him up to the, the tower. The devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment and said to him, to you, I will give all this authority and their glory, for it has been delivered to me, and I give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. Now, I don't know, but that doesn't seem like it would be a a major temptation for Jesus because it seems like it's a little too obvious, a little too blatant for Jesus to actually take serious and be tempted. I mean, really worship the devil? Considering the fact that Jesus was God the Son, he was the creator and the sustainer, the ruler of the universe, and for for Satan to say, you know, worship me, 
At the same time, though, there is some truth to what Satan is saying. Satan is described as the god of this world in 2 Corinthians 4.4, and the world is being under his power, 1 John 5.19. We saw that earlier. So Satan is offering Jesus what Adam gave up when he sinned, offering him dominion over the earth, um, and it's what Jesus actually has come to restore. But Satan is offering it to Jesus without Jesus having to die on a cross. So that's, that's the catch. That's why it's a significant temptation. And the same temptation goes back again to creation, to the creation story, Genesis 1, 26 through 28. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock, over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female. He created them, and God blessed them, and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. That's what Adam was created for. He was created to rule, to have dominion over creation, to be a co-ruler under God. But he blew it, and he lost it when he sinned. Not only did he lose his place of dominion over the earth, but all of creation then suffered as a result <clears throat> of that sin and loss. So Jesus has come <clears throat> to restore that dominion, to reverse the curse on creation, to eliminate Satan's influence and power and that's promised to Eve and the promise that her seed would crush the head of the serpent uh, in Genesis 3.15. It's also the promise of God the Father to the Son in Psalm 2.8. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage. And in Daniel 7.13-14 and verse 27, where the Son of Man receives the kingdom <clears throat> from the ancient of days and shares it with his people. And then finally in Revelation 11.15, which says, then the seventh angel blew his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. That's what Jesus came to accomplish. That's his mission. He did come to forgive sin and restore us to a right relationship with God, but that's all part of restoring the created order that was lost and which fell under Satan's power at the fall when Adam sinned. Jesus said this after his death and resurrection and before his ascension in Matthew 28, 18. He said, um, Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. <clears throat> Satan no longer has any authority. So that's why this temptation is so powerful. It would allow Jesus to accomplish what he came to do, restore the created order, dominion to man, um, regain man's place of rulership, restore the order without the cross. But here's how Jesus responds. You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. And that response is significant because it recalls what his whole life in ministry was to be, the suffering servant prophesied in Isaiah. 
He was to submit to the Father in coming to serve and not be served, suffering humiliation and death, serving the Father, obeying the Father's will in order to restore creation and regain what was lost. So Jesus is in essence saying to the devil, I've come to regain all of the kingdoms of the world, <clears throat> but I'll do it as a humble, suffering servant, serving God the Father, doing his will, not giving in to your temptation. And by being obedient to the Father, carrying out his mission as our representative, as the last Adam, he will have paid the price for sin, restored creation, restored the kingdoms of the world to their rightful ruler. He will have undone all that Adam did, and he will have done all that Adam failed to do. He will do that through suffering, through deprivation, through hunger, through loneliness, being despised by the people that he came to save, and finally suffering death on a cross, but then resurrection and glorification and ascension. So <clears throat> he doesn't give in to the devil's temptation uh, to avoid that suffering, <clears throat> to bring that about. But there's still more. There's a third temptation, verses 9 and 11. <clears throat> and he took him to Jerusalem and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down from here. For it is written, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. And Luke's description of the pinnacle of the temple would indicate that it's probably the highest point in Jerusalem and it would be visible to everyone who was living in Jerusalem. So the devil says, throw yourself off the pinnacle and show everyone how much you trust God, how much you trust his word. And God will, of course, save you by sending the angels to rescue you. And that'll prove to everyone that you are, in fact, the son of God. And then they'll believe in you. Then they'll follow you. So is that sinful? Just to prove to all these unbelievers that Jesus is God the Son? Well, again, uh, this is Satan's attempt to turn Jesus away from his mission, which was to be our representative as a man, suffering as a man in weakness and shame. He came in his humanity to save and restore humanity. And in his response to Satan, it's, it's very brief. You shall not put the Lord your God, to the test. In other words, don't tempt me to tempt God to do what's not in the Father's will to do. Now, interesting thing about that third temptation, after Jesus has responded to the first two temptations by quoting Scripture, uh, specifically Deuteronomy 8.3 and 6.13, now Satan attempts to tempt Jesus by quoting Scripture himself. When he says, he will command the angels, and on their hands they will bear you up. That's from Psalm 91, 11 and 12. Satan seems to be saying, you trust God's word, well, prove it by jumping, and let's see if Psalm 91 proves to be true. And that goes back to the garden again, where Satan twists the word of God and misuses it to cast doubt, okay? Cast doubt on the truth of his word. You can eat this and you won't die or jump and let's see if the angels will catch you. Well, Jesus knows that Satan is twisting Scripture and 
he's being tempted to win the faith and following people through some divine spectacle rather than through the suffering, crucifixion, and death that's been ordained by God, but <clears throat> because that is the only way of salvation. So don't tempt me to tempt God by not following through with God's plan of salvation. Don't ask me to do what the rebellious Israelites did in the wilderness. They tested God by asking for proof of his presence rather than uh, obeying him, trusting him. That's Exodus 17, 7. Jesus doesn't do that. His response is simple and to the point. You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Deuteronomy 6, 16. So Jesus resisted all the temptations the devil could throw at him. Satan tempted Jesus in many of the same ways that he tempted Adam and Eve in the garden. But Jesus trusted God's word. He obeyed God's word and God's will. He defeated Satan and all of his tactics to distract Jesus from his mission to suffer and die on a cross. And he showed the devil to be not only the enemy of God, but the enemy of all of humanity. And going back to the beginning of what I was talking about this morning, um, there are things that we can learn about how to respond to temptation uh, in this story, but again, it's not the point. Okay? The point is to understand what Jesus faced, what he accomplished, and why. Okay? So I want to close um, this with a couple of verses from an old hymn that's titled Praise to the Holiest in the Height. It was written in the 1800s by uh, John Henry Newman, and it really sums up what Jesus accomplished in the wilderness. O loving wisdom of our God, when all was sin and shame, a second Adam to the fight and to the rescue came. O wisest love, that flesh and blood that did in Adam fail, should strive afresh against the foe, should strive and should prevail. So that's the wilderness. Any questions? Doesn't say. Brendan. What does it mean? I would assume that it means when he would find Jesus in another weakened state, which most likely is, is the garden, Gethsemane. I'm assuming, but it doesn't say. It doesn't clarify that. To what? Oh, he knew. Yeah, he knew. I mean, he had been one of Jesus' angels, reincarnate Christ. Yeah.
it it doesn't say says that he grew in you know stature and uh, certainly at the baptism but i would assume because he possessed a divine nature and a human nature at the same time that he would have been self-aware yes ma'am Well, I didn't say that. I said that's not the primary purpose of the text. There are lessons that we can learn from it. I mean, how did he respond to temptation? He quoted scripture. You know, he trusted God's word. Yeah. And it would also say we're to flee youthful passions, flee from sin. by trusting the word, preaching the word to yourself in the midst of that temptation, being obedient to, how, to whatever the word commands as opposed to what the temptation presents to you. Speaking to the devil? Yeah. Nowhere in Scripture are we commanded to do that. I know. So I would say that that is, that is not a good approach. The best thing to do is to preach Scripture to yourself. Trust what God's Word says. And in doing that, you know, He will flee. Yeah. Well, when it says flee temptation, you don't put yourself in a, you don't put yourself in a situation. Like Jesus went out to confront the devil, went out to confront temptation. We're not to put us, well, I'm going to make sure, I want to see if I'm, I, I, I have proceeded, you know, further along in my sanctifi- sanctification, so I'm going, to go to a, I'm going to go to a strip joint and see if, you know, I'm not tempted to lust. So you would not put yourself in a situation, you know, where you would be tempted. You believe, tempt, get away from things that would tempt you, you know. Yeah, well, I mean, temptation is going to come. You don't have to go. You don't have to go looking for it. So when it does come, you rely on God's word to battle against the the tem- the sin that you're tempted to give into. Man, we we don't have to talk to Satan, and I think that's unwise. What's that? That even the angels didn't do that. Yeah. 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 In in some circles, it's a common thing. Yeah. Huh? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, we, we are indwelt by the Holy Spirit. He that is in us is stronger than he that is in the world, and we have the Word of God, which is the sword of the Spirit, and that's how we battle against temptation and sin. Yeah. Right.
Yeah. And believing it. Because every temptation, every temptation to sin is a lie. Right. Right. Yeah, holding a, holding a cross up to somebody who is demon-possessed is not a good thing. Yes, ma'am. Highly unlikely. Yeah. <laughs> right. Absolutely. Yeah, that's right. So, I mean, think about the fact that <clears throat> as far as Satan and his demons being the ones who come and tempt you, they could, and possibly they do. But even during the millennial kingdom, when Satan is bound and the demons are no longer, you know, walking around on the face of the earth, there's still sin because the sin is in the human heart, you know. Satan and the demons don't make people sin. We sin because we're sinners, you know? And... Charity said, you know, we do battle with the word of God. We confront the lies of temptation and sin with the truth of the word. And the Holy Spirit uses that, uses the word to conform us to the image of Christ and to equip us for, for battle and service. 